invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7. Again, this chapter will be our text or focus this afternoon. Second Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut you off or cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and your rest or end you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and have made it known to your servant. How great you are! O Sovereign Lord, there is none like you, or no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, 
the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promise, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant words. And finally, if you turn with me in your catechism, or in the catechism to Lord's Day 14, you should find that on page 487 of your a book of praise in the back. Lord's Day 14 begins with question and answer 35. What do you confess when you say, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I'm sure many of you have researched your family line or your family background or family name. I'm sure some of the boys and girls here have done that in school as well. You had to look and see where Oma and Opa perhaps were born in Holland and uh, look where your family has been for many, many generations, for many years. Some of you may even have a coat of arms hanging in your, in your hallway or in your house somewhere that, that indicates some, some level of pride on your part to, to be associated with this name. Perhaps even more distinctly, some of you have some family traditions that go back for hundreds of years that, that every year you continue to hold on to and pass on to your children and grandchildren. As we think about our family names and our family lines, we can't help but think that the Bible also presents a family and a family line, a genealogy, if you will. Beloved, this genealogy or family line of Scripture is different, however, not simply because it is an alternative family or one with a different name, but because it is one that 
begins and ends in grace. It does not bring about pride, therefore, but humility that comes when we know that we are in that family by Christ alone. We, of course, know that very well through Matthew chapter 1, as well as the record in the Gospel of Luke. But this has been communicated to God's people in many different ways throughout redemptive history. Particularly, one of the ways that the Bible speaks of this line of Jesus Christ is that of being of the house of David. And so we'll examine God's promises to the house of David in 2 Samuel 7 in order for us to understand what it means to be a member of the family of Christ as he has come, like us, in the flesh, yet without sin, as our catechism reminds us. Our first point, or the first thing we see in our scripture lesson, is a desire for God, which of course is from David. We read that David is sitting on his throne, pondering, for God has blessed him with rest from his enemies. In other words, David now enjoys peace and safety, and therefore David has some time to think. And he thinks and looks at the house which he has built for himself, a house of cedar, Comparatively, he looks at the ark, which is yet behind curtains in a tent. The contrast could not be more striking. The king of Israel dwells in a beautiful home. Nothing wrong with that, but the creator and king of the universe dwells in a makeshift temporary shelter. We should not be mistaken, however. David did not conceive that somehow God was limited to the ark or bound to it. Rather, God himself, as you know, is content to reveal himself there in the tabernacle between those two cherubim that dwelt on top of the ark to indicate his closeness to his people. But you see, for David, that's not enough. David desires then, as he often did, to glorify his God. In this case, to put the Ark of the Covenant in a temple worthy of God's majesty. Now we need not imply then any wrong motivations here. David's word and character are good. He is not at fault in this desire. This is indicated by the fact that the prophet Nathan is nearby. David wants to please God by listening to him. Boys and girls, you know that God used prophets to speak to the kings of old. But David isn't merely waiting for the prophet, but indeed speaks with him and receives his blessing. The blessing of God's mouthpiece. And so David pursues the plan of his heart. But since we know, congregation, that David, or rather God, corrects this assumption on the part of David... How then should we think of David and Nathan since we know that they were wrong? I think then we can say that they were misguided. What we see here for our instruction is that even the words of the prophet are not infallible when spoken according to his own inner prodding. What can seem to be right is in fact incorrect. So one commentator has rightly said, the kingdom of God is never safe in human hands, no matter how godly those hands may be. 
Lord condescended himself to use human mediators to communicate his will and plan of salvation to his people in many generations, but was never ultimately dependent upon these people in order for his plan of salvation to be accomplished in Christ. Sometimes we, like David and Nathan, however, tend to get lost in the wrong things, getting lost in the details of the kingdom instead of seeing the bigger picture. You see, David had his mind so focused upon a house for God, but God himself was thinking of a plan, as you well know, that stretched way beyond what David could see or would see. Like David, our desires to serve God are often good. But are they according to the plan of redemption? Do they promote the kingdom and Christ's glory as Savior, which truly is at the heart of our Lord's Day this afternoon? In other words, we have to ask ourselves the question, perhaps often, what is more important, what we do for God or what God has done for us? Yet the wonderful truth regarding our story and David's desire is that God condescends to David, even when David is incorrect, by speaking to him, concerning the desires of his heart and revealing what God is going to do through David. In other words, what we need to see is that God reverses the situation. David thought he would be the gift giver to God. God says, no, I'm going to be the gift giver to you, David. God does this first of all by giving him several reminders, which is our second point. As David proceeds with his plan to build the house, we see that the prophet is instructed that David will not be the one to build this house. The Lord will decide who is the constructor, who is the author, as it were, of the temple. The Lord will decide when this temple will be built. It is not man who decides, but God in his sovereign will who decrees. And so God teaches David by, in a sense, reaching back in history. And he says, by way of a general reminder, first of all, concerning Israel's history. So David remembers that he is part of, of a larger plan in verses 6 and 7. In particular, I want you to note, as someone has pointed out, the, the word move there, the verb move. Note to whom it is applied. It is God. It is God who is said to have moved with his people Israel wherever they went. Not just the tabernacle, not just the ark, which we could say symbolized God's presence, but God himself actually went along with his people wherever their travels led them, precisely because he was leading them. This has always been the way it was up to this time. When did I, God says to David, say that I wanted anything otherwise? And of course, The Lord does not merely say this to correct David. But what is here in that word or in that verb move is an intimation of the incarnation. That is, God with us. 
Emmanuel. You see, in a sense, the incarnation of Christ, therefore, coming as one who was born of the Virgin Mary, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, is not so radical, is it? Or should not have been so radical. Of course, as you read the Gospels, you witness the resistance, the violent resistance and anger against Jesus' claims to be the Son of God. But nevertheless, the Lord was always with his people and always desired to be where his people were. And here is a foreshadowing of that when our Lord came in the flesh, isn't there? Where he went and moved and dwelt wherever his people were. But secondly, we also see not only a general reminder about Israel's history, but a very specific reminder concerning David's history in verses 8 and 9. David, who are you? God asks. David, who made you? Who you were? David, who provided you with what you need? David, who protected you? Who defended you from your enemies? Time and time again. I don't believe that the scripture tells us that God directs his servant to these things because David has forgotten. But again, it's simply to draw out the the magnitude and the, the greatness of God's mercy up to this point. Why, boys and girls, David is reminded that he himself was was just a lowly shepherd at a point who has become a king in Israel. What an impossible thing, but nothing is impossible with God. The great name that David has, even, was given to him by God. He is nothing that does not point back to the God of Israel. We have to understand, then, the difference between a rebuke And a reminder, there is an essential difference with regards to how God speaks to us, but also how we ought to speak to our fellow men. At times, a reminder, a gentle reminder to our brothers and sisters in the Lord, who maybe we think are trumpeting or triumphing their own cause, or or whatever they have done in their life, and we need to say to them instead of rebuking, but yes, what has God done for you? Notice how... Often, the catechism is very personal in its language as it is here in our Lord's Day. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? Don't think about yourself, first and foremost. Think about what God has done for you. That's a wonderful reminder, not a rebuke. But then God opens up David's mind also to the future. David yet has years to live. David himself is looking also perhaps to the next generation. And in verses 10 and 11, God gives him at least a, somewhat of a glimpse of, of what things will be like even after David has passed on. In other words, God tells him, I am just beginning, David. You are just a means to an end. The ends don't justify the means. But the means are the way in which God accomplishes the end. What is that end? A greater rest. A greater prosperity than even that which David and Israel now enjoyed. Now imagine you are are present or you heard of those words from David or someone else. 
Consider where God's people are at this point. They, they, they must feel that they're at the height, at the, at the greatest point in Israel's history. They not only have the land that God has promised to Abraham, they have the people to fill it, and they have a king. And he's not just any old king like Saul, as you're reminded, whom God left to himself. No, this is David, a man after God's own heart. It's kind of like if you were planning to hike a a very large, a, a massive mountain, say, in the Rockies. Perhaps you don't know much about this mountain, but you you figure at one point, having been hiking for several hours, that you must be near the end, if, if not at the end. And you look around you and you see the beauty and grandeur of the creation and of all the valleys and the, the rivers. And, and you cannot help but glorify God. And up above you, For all that time you've been climbing are clouds, but you think somewhere shortly, within a few minutes, I'll be at the end. And then those clouds disappear, and you see that you're really only halfway, if that far. David and his generation were only up a ways of that mountain. And they could not see what was ahead. And David is reminded by God, I'm a God of the generations. And so the promises that God gives to David, as we'll see more explicitly in our third point, a reminder to him and to us that the church of God is not just about the here and now. It is the church of God forever and ever as it has always been as God has decreed it. Maybe the Lord's will that he would tarry for hundreds of years. Think how many more Christians there will be in the world who will rejoice to hear the news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and of the salvation he has won for his people. We need this reminder too. Christ didn't just come for me. He came for you. He didn't just come for you, he, he came for them. Like David, it is good to hear of what the Lord will do, even when we are passed on, when we are dead, to remind us that our God is a covenant-keeping God. But then, congregation, we do come truly to the heart of the matter, don't we, in our third point. God's promise for the house of David is a kingdom. For David. Despite the fact that God's plan is bigger than one person, David and his line as a people or family have or possess a significant part in God's redemptive plan. And so God specifically tells him what he will do in the next generation. Indeed, from God's opening words, we get the understanding that it is David's life and lineage that are more important than an actual house for God, for a building, however great it might be, and even as it will be built by Solomon himself. God, in fact, says that it is not so much that he needs a home after all to dwell in, but it is a home for his name. And as you know, God's name is intimately connected with the people who are called by his name or in his name. Even as we see in verse 10, 
that the reason why God would establish this kingdom was that God's people would have a secure place to dwell. A place where they would enjoy peace and safety for generations to come. The point is that Israel would always remember what God had done for David. And even when they would remember what David had done for God, they couldn't help but remember what God had done for David. Furthermore, that this house and this kingdom is greater than a building is indicated by the fact that a kingdom needs a king. Without a king, there is no kingdom, for a kingdom without a king will eventually devolve into anarchy. But notice again that God claims the rights of glory and grace to himself. He will be the builder of this kingdom. This is very important because of the precise promises that follow in verses 12 to 16. And we can, as someone has noted, define those or explain them in three challenges to the kingdom that God himself will overcome. The first is death, because King David will die, and King Solomon will die. But God promises, despite death, that it will continue. The second challenge is that of sin, as we see in verse 14. It is assumed that David's descendants will sin. They will do wrong. And what will God do to them? Will he cast them off? Will he he get rid of them and find someone else? God says, no, I will chastise them. But my love will never leave them. Not death nor sin can undermine or destroy this kingdom and God's promises concerning it. And finally, time. Time which, which wears away. And institutions and foundations, not just physical buildings and people, but even ideas and promises which can be forgotten by man because he is weak. God says, even time shall not overthrow my kingdom. Why? Because verse 16, it is a forever kingdom, just as God himself is a forever God. And you see, you understand now what is happening here, what God is saying, God is guaranteeing only as God himself could guarantee a kingdom for David. You understand what this means? You understand whose responsibility it is? What happens now is on God. His name is at stake. Theologians rightly or Reformed theologians anyways, rightly speak of the covenant as being created unilaterally, one-sided. God himself institutes the covenant. And often we speak of the covenant being administered bilaterally. And that is true. It's administered amongst men. Not as those who are equal to God, but yet, in the same time, are called to respond to God's promises. And certainly we see that, in a sense, it it, it is very much the case that God is making a covenant with David and with his line. But isn't it true that ultimately it is God himself that fulfills the conditions of the very covenant that he prescribes? Another must come after David, and then the house of the Lord will be established, verse 13. Now, this is obviously a reference to Solomon. You can't escape that. But the fact that it is a forever kingdom and throne makes it certain that it cannot be Solomon alone. In fact, 
we must conclude that Solomon is a mere picture of the glory of the kingdom that is to come. Therefore, we assert through Scripture that it is Christ who fulfills the conditions of all of these statements. Paul removes any doubt when he refers to Jesus, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, which itself is an attestation to the gospel record of Jesus' lineage in the line of Judah and David. For remember, after all, we are looking for, as the Catechism notes, one who has a true human nature, not half-human or in the appearance of humanity, but real flesh and blood, because that's precisely what God promises to David. God does not deal in spiritual promises that have no meaning for flesh and blood people. From day one, God said Eve would have a seed, someone from her line to crush the head of the serpent. You see, salvation is not only couched in human terms, but delivered in human terms. Not according to human terms, but according to humanity's needs. The need which we have by virtue of our sin, and according to the terms that God's justice requires for us, and according to the terms and fulfillment that God's mercy provides. A mediator like us, for us, to God. That's why it's important. Essential, we see, that this can only be fulfilled by Christ. For note, the Catechism says, we need all of that, but yet one without sin. Therefore, I want you to note that question and answer 36 is not an ingenious or creative answer to to get ourselves out of a bind. It is essential to the gospel itself, for the gospel is the answer, isn't it? As you, my brothers and sisters, know well. What does question and answer 36 say? What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. What are we talking about here? We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about justification. We're talking about imputation of Christ's righteousness. This is not clever. This is good news. Good news to sinners like you and like me. It is clear then that the son of David who would be chastised for his sins were not truly his own that he had committed, but those of his people laid upon him that they may not be punished by God. And that is Jesus Christ. What ought then we say about these things? Well, let us use the example of David as we see forth his response. David goes to the Lord, presumably to the very tabernacle which he was eyeing and desiring to improve. As others have noted, he essentially does two things. He gives praise and petition, or petitions. We want to 
understand this in light of what God calls us also. First of all, praise. Verses 18 to 29. The first part of the praise, as we see in verse 18, is simply, Who am I? Not in the sense of he was trying to understand his identity in light of God's promises, but a true and absolute humility, the very thing that we spoke of in the introduction of our sermon. Who am I that God would choose me to bring his promises to God's people? That's why, secondly, in verse 19, if I can summarize, by grace alone. By grace alone. This third leaves him speechless, verse 20. Even though he speaks it as if he he had nothing to say at this point. What, What can we say in light of God's mercy to us? What kind of a response do we have that equals the gospel, the message of the incarnate Son of God, our mediator, conceived and born, holy, righteous, and yet became a sinner, or like a sinner, for us. The only thing really that David has to say in verses 21 and 22 is to speak of God's greatness. What a great God we have. What a wonderful God. And then finally, under praise, he speaks of Israel, or speaks on behalf of Israel, I believe as a king, as their representative says, who is Israel? That she deserves to be treated this way, unlike any other nation of the earth. Now, especially in light of that, that last thing that he says, I want to ask you a question. What does Rome, the city of man, as Augustine would call it, or a representative of the city of man and all its grandeur and its greatness. What does Rome have to do with Jerusalem, the city of David, the the city representing Zion or the church? I ask that question because Paul seems to be concerned with Rome, even as he writes to the Christians who have assembled there. David's words in accordance with the promise, seem to limit God's blessing upon the children of Abraham. Yet Paul speaks to the Roman Christians with boldness and says, this is for you too. Beloved, we need to understand then clearly that God determined that the holy city of David, including the very temple that would be built, was but a picture of the church of all ages which would not be bound in time and space because God would not be bound in time and space. And only once we could say, was God bound in time and space, that is when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came in the flesh as a man and dwelt among us. But our Lord taught his apostles, his disciples, I have not just come for the house of Israel. Ultimately, I have come for the whole world. You see, Rome has everything to do with Christ. Just as we say, would say Ottawa represents or has everything to do with Canada, Rome has everything to do with Christ. Because King David's seed, Jesus, would become king not only of Israel, but of the entire earth, even as he now is. 
And through him, subjects would be brought to bow the knee to serve him as Lord of all. Jesus has everything to do with Canada. Has everything to do with the nation in which we live. And beloved, it is true then that our praise ought to be greater than that of David. For David only saw the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise in the next generation. We have seen this promise extended to the whole earth. Our praise ought to be greater. And thus we must join David in our petitions as well as we see in verses 25 to 29. A strange thing in a way when you read it carefully. Because ultimately all David is saying in his petitions is, God do what you said you would do. Is David doubting God? Absolutely not. His promises are sure. Rather, we ought to, as David, pray God's promises. Not reminding God as if he had forgot, but speaking forth in faith the very things that God himself has said he would do. That this world one day would be subject to, as we sometimes say, that infant, that baby Jesus. Beloved, do you pray like this? You pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you pray for the reign of Jesus Christ now, not only in the hearts of God's people, but all humanity, with confidence that whatever God has promised to bring about in Christ, he will do so? And then I want you to do this. Believe by scripture, we are called to do this. Add everything up that we've talked about this afternoon. Add everything up. What do you and I have to say about ourselves? What is there in our families or in our lines or in our names that will be recognized, that will be spoken of, that will be exalted? I have one thing for you, and that is your sin. Not how great you are, not your achievements or even your best efforts for the kingdom of God. No, the sin in which you were conceived and born. This is what we are reminded and called to remind ourselves of this afternoon. This is what we bring to the kingdom. This is what we offer to God. Of course, this is not to undermine our thanksgiving, our sanctification, our strive striving to be holy by the Spirit within. It is only to recognize, as David realized, that God is the giver. It's his promises that encourage us, above all, to do the things that he has called us to do. Do they encourage you? Amen. Let us respond to God's word by singing hymn 14. We'll sing all four stanzas of hymn 14.
Let us now give thanksgiving unto our God in prayer. <clears throat> 